It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. These words of our Lord from the Gospel according to St. John, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. One of the most mysterious dichotomies, you might even say paradoxes, of human life is the pairing of body and spirit. In the ancient world, the most common understanding was something like this, that the body is a betrayal of that reality that you and I truly are, that of a spirit, of a form. Today, this can be seen as deep spiritual yearning that is ambivalent about the body. Lest you think you are free of this, Maybe another definition is the vice of cold intellectualism, which I don't know there are many of us that are free of that. Either way, the Gnostic believes that knowledge is of the essence. The other end of the spectrum, and very, very popular today, claims that the only things which can be truly known are those things which I can touch, taste, and see. In what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame, the whole host of spiritual things are pushed out of view, angels, demons, even God himself. This is the cold empiricism of the scientist, the political policy of the utopian. The truth is that even though you and I are here this morning, we are inescapably secular. We live life taking this option over and over and over again. It is our fundamental posture and has been since the time we were little kids. I remember as a little kid uh, watching space shuttle launches uh, in kindergarten and elementary school. That probably ages me. But the the reality of it is that that I was watching one of these one time and, and the teacher just said, What a wonderful age of scientific discovery we live in. That was what she was excited about. The Christian, however, must live in the utter bewilderment of this paradox. I am not a mere body. I am not a spirit with a more or less insignificant body. Something like a meat suit. I am a totality of body and spirit. And by the way, one of the most astonishing and slanderous quotes ever falsely attributed to C.S. Lewis, and there are many, is this. You don't have a body, you are a soul. You have a body. Lewis would have never said this. And he would have immediately understood it and recognized it for what it is. False. We are both body and spirit. Why must this be? Well, the answer comes from the very understanding that the church has always had of the person of Jesus Christ. Not that he is God with a more or less meaningless body, or that he is a human being who is exceptionally gifted with the Spirit of God, but the very teaching of what is called the hypostatic union, that Jesus Christ is a personal union of God and man. Humanity coming from us, and his eternal deity, eternally begotten of the Father. Lurking behind every false understanding of anthropology, be it ancient or modern, is a heresy that overthrows the very truth of the gospel. If you want to get good at sniffing out heresies, one of the things you can do is look for the human nature and look for the divine nature. And if you see both, you're probably on to the goodness of the faith. So it is, to say the least, confusing to hear this from Jesus today. It is the Spirit 
who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. To get to the bottom of this, we have to go deeper into Scripture, to the very beginning of human life. It is in the second chapter of Genesis that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Contrary to this breath being something like the Holy Spirit, it is clear that the breath belongs to man. It is a created thing. Adam is raised from the mire by the gift of life, the gift of breath. But as we read in the end of the verse, and the man became a living creature, this is life of a different sort. In fact, the word here for creature is actually something closer to man became a soul or a passion or a desire. This living being is not like the other creatures. He breathes, but he has a different kind of life in addition to breathing. Basil the Great says that from the very beginning of human life, God gives human beings a share of his own grace, a share in his own life, in order that he might recognize likeness through likeness. In other words, God recognizes in human life something which cannot be seen. It is hidden, invisible, and yet very, very real. This is not the same kind of life that is put into the flesh. It is not the kind of life which you can see on an EKG or a heart monitor or a brainwave monitor. It is a component of human life that is what we might call spiritual. Another way of putting this is that God creates both the inner person and the outer person. Gregor Nyssa says this, God made the inner person. He molded the outer. Molding is suitable for clay, but making is fitting for an image. So on the one hand, he molded flesh, but on the other, he made the soul. This brings us back to this paradoxical understanding of human nature that as opposed to being fleshly or spiritual or even mostly flesh or mostly spirit, the human person is both, one visible, the other invisible, both created. And so what is Jesus saying when he says, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. First, we must say that Jesus is here speaking of a life which is unseen. C.S. Lewis had that wonderful uh, comparison between the Greek words bios and zoe. Something you should read again. Jesus is here speaking of this higher form of life, zoe. I've said before that if you want the key to understanding the com any component part of the Gospel of John, just go back to the prologue and read it. So if you're reading along in John and you think, this doesn't make any sense, just go back to the prologue. It's very enlightening. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is not speaking here of physical darkness, the darkness of night. Night does not cease on the coming of the divine Logos into the world. What is overcome is the darkness which lays heavy upon the soul of every human person. The darkness of sin and ignorance. 
And John says this, that for those who believe, for those who receive the word, the word, God gave them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Born to a new kind of life. This unseen life is the life of the soul that has been adopted into the family of God. Born of God. Born of the Spirit. The apostles in the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John received the gift of the Holy Spirit by the very breath of Jesus. Still today, in some baptismal liturgies, the priest blows in the face of the newly baptized. It's kind of one of those neat things where there's two meanings. There's both the spiritual meaning and the physical meaning. The spiritual meaning is breathing new life into you by the Holy Spirit. The physical meaning is this. Kid, you can open your eyes now. You're not underwater anymore. So as soon as you blow into that child's face, they go, this human being has been born to new life, but first has been buried with Christ, becoming dead to sin, to be raised to this new life of grace. Why we should say that the life in the body is a real life, we should say even more that a life that is merely bodily is not actually even human. We should say that life in the body with a living soul is human, but is it redeemed? Is it enlightened? Is it graced with the benefits of adoption by grace? No. Second, we must be, not be quick to take this exchange with the disciples out of context. It is, after all, the end of John chapter 6, the so-called bread of life discourse. This discourse follows Jesus' rendering of the feeding of the 5,000 at the beginning of the chapter. Upon gathering up fragments of bread, the people demand to make Jesus king by force. Amazing how that happens. Because they were hungry an hour before and are hungry no more, they demand that Jesus become king. And you and I know that this is a very true thing to say. At the end of the day, we human beings demand bread more than any other thing. Give me half a pound of brisket, some bread, and some pickles, and I will want to make you my king. Something happens to me when I become hungry. I become an irrational monster. Hunger turns our bodies into our masters. We become captive to what we can see, what we can feel. And Jesus knows this. He says to the disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They are captive to the life of bios. And this is often asked to the church, why? Haven't you Christians solved global hunger yet? You've had 2,000 years. What's wrong with you? What's the matter with you? And it's a good question, but it's not the central question. It's not the central question because there is a hunger much deeper than a hunger for food. It is the hunger of the soul that wanders in darkness. The hunger of the soul that seeks out true life but does so apart from from God. 
think often the reason we don't understand this mystery of adoption to new life is that we don't understand the pain of being an orphan. Is anyone in here an orphan? Some of you may be. But Jesus speaks of a different kind of food that endures to eternal life. Food which the Son of Man will give, namely Himself. I am the bread of life. Jesus says, whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. And this cannot be taken in a little in literal manner. I still thirst. I still hunger. I still get grouchy if I haven't had my coffee in the morning. But it also cannot be taken in an entirely symbolic manner either. And this is what kicks off this dispute in the Gospel reading today. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus had said, the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He doubles down on his fleshly body and fleshly blood as the means of life for his people. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, lives in me and I in him. This is where I must recall you back to what was said before. If we wish to know the true meaning of human life, true life, we see it in Jesus. His flesh is no abstraction surrounding a true spiritual life. There is no contradiction here. Jesus is seen. He is also unseen. He is man and He is God. And we should say that Jesus is the very ideal, the very end of human life. My friend Jim Packer of blessed memory would always say to be made in the image of God means that you are made to be like Jesus. But how, I would ask, can you become who Jesus is without participation in His body? How can you become like Jesus if you have no fellowship with Him? No fellowship with His church. No fellowship in His communion. And this is the very point that I would add where Anglican Eucharistic theology comes to the fore. We Anglicans hold that the Eucharist is not physical blood and physical flesh veiled behind the appearance of accidents of bread and wine. We do not hold that it is bios flesh, which you could see if only you had the eyes to see it. But rather, that the Eucharist is patterned after the personal union of Christ and His divine and human natures. Such that we can say that the Eucharist is not merely bread any more than it is merely the body of Jesus. No, we say with Scripture that it is participation in the body and blood of Jesus, participation in the very life of Christ, not after a fleshly manner, but after a spiritual one. The great Anglican divine Lancelot Andrews says that the Eucharist is precisely this, a hypostatic, a personal union of that which is seen and that which is unseen. To say that it is spiritual is no negation of the physical. It is only to say with Jesus that it is the Spirit 
that gives life. For this reason, you'll note that at each Eucharist, the celebrant invokes the Holy Spirit upon the Eucharistic gifts, saying, we ask you to bless and sanctify with your word and Holy Spirit these gifts of bread and wine that we receiving them according to your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ's holy institution in remembrance of his death and passion may be partakers of his most blessed body and blood. In fact, if I may be permitted one final point, and I don't want to blow past that wonderful reading from Ephesians, which I'm so gratified is now read because you know, it was read at my wedding, and uh, it always reminds me of that. Or rather, Ella's wedding to me. But This epiclesis is what it's called in the Greek. This invocation of the Holy Spirit is akin to the invocation of the Holy Spirit upon husband and wife in the marriage rite. Their union is unapologetically physical. The two become one flesh. Indeed, without a sexual fleshly union, it cannot be a marriage. But this is different from saying that their union is merely sexual or merely physical. No, by calling down the blessing and grace of the Holy Spirit in this sacrament, the spouses receive the Holy Spirit as the communion of love of Christ and the church. The Holy Spirit is the seal of their covenant, the ever-available source of their love and the strength to renew their fidelity. They have this bodily life. It's important. It's meaningful. But they also have a spiritual life as husband and wife. Meaning simply that marriage shows forth the joining of the body of Christ, the church, to the body of Christ, well, I don't know how else to put it, the body of Christ. The church becomes by grace what she is not by nature. And in true nuptial fashion, she receives everything that the Lord has. This is what we do in marriage, isn't it? When I got married you know, almost 16 years ago, I had nothing and my wife had nothing. And so it was quite a good union at that point because we both had nothing. Although I had some debt which she didn't have. But every time this happens, what do we say? Everything that is mine is now yours. And likewise, everything that I have is now yours. This is the very center of this covenantal life. And I would say it's not all too different from what we come together to do today. To renew the body of Christ, to renew it, to renew her in new life by participation in the body of Christ. To, as St. Augustine says, eat what we become and become what we are. The body of Christ. And it is through this that we gain what we did not have by nature. That which we could only have as a primary grace, but never as a final one. Union with the one through whom we were made. True life. Real life. Life as children of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.